0: We want to turn our attention to God's Word. And we've read a couple of portions already one from the Gospels, one from the last book of the Bible. In all of these passages, we see the truth concerning the resurrected Christ being set before us as a means of giving hope, as a means of giving perspective, as a means of instructing our souls so that we might enjoy the rich and full blessings that God has provided for us through Jesus. We're going to open our Bibles this morning to one of the Apostle Paul's letters. This is a letter that he wrote to the saints at the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a coastal town, and it uh, it had been privileged to have several different preachers of the gospel, some of them apostles, others who were just positioned by God to bring truth uh, to that important city, a place that had many, many things economically and politically and religiously uh, that characterized it. But in those early years following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, it was also a place where the Lord Jesus sent his gospel. And we're going to go to chapter two in just a moment. And if you do not have a copy of the Bible, uh, whether electronically or printed copy, there are some in those seat racks uh, in the chairs in front of you. You might have to look down a couple of seats, but we would invite you to take one of the copies of the Bible and have it open there so you can see these things that God has given us. Before we do that, though, I want to pray, and I'll ask you to join me, please. Almighty God. We have such joy and relief in our hearts today because what Jesus Christ did for us could never be duplicated. And what he did for us needs nothing added to it. And when he cried from the cross, it is finished. It signaled that the sacrifice had been made, that your wrath had been appeased, absorbed fully in him. That the cup of wrath that was brimming with your righteous anger over the sins of every man and woman and every nation from the beginning of time had been drunk to the bottom. And There was no wrath left for repenting people. His cry from the cross signaled that guilt had been removed. And where there was a death sentence over every one of us, it had fallen upon Jesus and life and reconciliation, forgiveness, salvation had been accomplished. And when you raised your son from the grave and when he resurrected himself, even as he promised, I lay down my life of my own will. No one takes it from me. And if I lay it down, I have power to take it up again. How how thankful we are and amazed that in your great power he raised from the dead it signaled that the work had been accepted justification had been made dead people would be brought to life would you give us a right understanding of your word today with the apostle Paul we pray that you our God and our Lord the Father of glory would give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, so that we might know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe. Same power that worked mightily in Christ when you raised him from the dead and then seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Give us eyes to see these things and hearts that understand this life-changing truth. And so we pray these things, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The Apostle Paul makes reference to the appearance of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8, where he writes that Jesus appeared to Cephas, or that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." And Paul lines up those particular accounts like witnesses entering a courtroom to say, if some of you have questions as to whether or not the resurrection of Jesus Christ was personal, was bodily, was visible, was actual, let me assure you that there are hundreds of people who have seen the risen Christ, and I'm among them. So it is, in fact, an historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But we did not come today to celebrate history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ signaled the most dramatic moment in the history of the universe. The kingdom of God had, in fact, broken into the chaos and disorder of this world. Chaos and disorder that sin ushered in long before this, when Adam and Eve first rebelled against God and ate the forbidden fruit. And the blinding darkness of all kinds of false ways, either back to God or away from God, were interrupted by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. On Friday, the Creator, as we were singing earlier, shed His blood for the redemption of His created ones. And through that Sabbath night and day to follow, He rested in the tomb from that work of redemption, having, as He said from the cross, I commit my spirit into your hands, Father. But death could not hold Him. And the grave could not contain him. The resurrection and the life, as Jesus is known, breathed again and rose from the dead. And his resurrection marks a great, spiritually significant moment. It even marks a great spiritual divide between the living and the dead. I don't mean that the living as we are assembled here today, living, breathing people, and we might journey to a graveyard and see the tombs of dead ones, but actually in spiritual terms, there are some who are alive in this room and there are some who are dead in this room. There are many who are alive in this valley and many who are dead, spiritually speaking, in this valley. And so it's true around the world. And to this day, that spiritual division exists. People who are dead, as the scriptures before us will tell us, in their trespasses and sins and those who have been made alive together with Christ. And there really are only those two groups. There's no middle ground according to the word of God. Now, if your Bible is already open to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, look with me at chapter 2, and I want to read through the first uh, 10 verses in total, but we'll just take uh, the first three for the first few minutes. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this is not good news. It's just not good at all because there's a condition that Paul actually ascribes to every person who has ever lived. Some still remain there. Others have been delivered from it. But this is actually a very grim truth, and that is that there is a kind of of death, a spiritual death that he is describing, and, and it is a deadness that exists apart from Christ. Four particular categories that unfold in these first three verses for us, and when Paul says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. He is actually speaking of a spiritual condition where we're dead to Christ and his gospel. That's what it means to be dead in sin. It doesn't mean that they buried you in the ground somewhere, it just means that spiritually speaking, you are in a condition of alienation and separation from God. And look at the Bible again. Paul tells us why, because of trespasses. That's a term that speaks of sins in general. And then the term sins would include any aberration from God's prescribed law or those rules of duty that he has established. And we sometimes even refer to sins with with qualifiers, don't we? How about the, the, the sin of lying? Sometimes you'll even hear, well, it was just a white lie. And humanly speaking, we're all like, oh, okay, we'll give you a pass on that. But actually in God's sight, whether it's a white lie or the most heinous and pernicious and evil kind of lie, it all is a lie it breaks his law and it plunges us into this condition it could be the sin of unbelief it could be the sin of immorality in its many forms. It could be habits of sin or even an unintentional sin that just in a moment of weakness you commit that. Even works done in self-righteousness as the prophet Isaiah describes are in offense to God when they rise out of an effort to save oneself rather than as an act of faith in the finished work of Christ. Dead in sin. There's a second thing that the text speaks of and that is walking. Did you notice that as we read through this text together, in which you once walked, and then Paul describes a a following of a particular course and following of a particular person, and then even committing acts where seemingly we have no control over them. And it reminds us that in this condition of death, spiritual death, there's actually slavery involved enslaved is a term that could summarize the kinds of things that he's talking about. Now, look again at the text, because when Paul describes this enslavement, he says, in which you once walked. What's he talking about? What does he mean, you once walked? That term, walked, is is simply a metaphor for living life in a particular manner. That is, you lived in a certain way. Now, look at the first thing that Paul says in the text, verse 2. Following the course of... Of this world. What does that mean, following the course of this world? Or or we could modify that translation a little bit this way according to this world age. Every age has a spirit, doesn't it? Every age has characteristics. The age in which we live is a very conflicted age. We often talk about the tribalism, even in our own nation, and and people just seem to be at polar opposites. far ends of the spectrum in their political opinions or their religious viewpoints or their purposes and mission for life. We feel the the tension of this particular age, but what Paul is referring to here is being in lockstep with a system of thinking that is actually hostile toward God. It's not about politics per se, whether you're conservative or progressive. It's not about some kind of economic mindset where you say, oh, I'm content with a very simplified life or you say, I wanna have it all. It's not about any of those things. It's, It's actually a world system that says to God, no. Either I want religion in my own terms, and so I'm going to make it up as I believe God exists, or as I believe the way to eternal life exists, or some people say, I want nothing to do with God and religion. It's a worldview that says, I'll do it my way. That's what it means to follow the course of the world. There's a second phrase in this text, and this is sobering, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, this is a clear reference to the devil. He is described in many other places in many other ways. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, is recorded as referring to Satan as the ruler of this world. He has supernatural authority and power. He doesn't have the power to actually make you do things. You know, sometimes we would even Uh, somewhat joke, oh, the devil made me do it. You're never his puppet, but he does exert power and influence in this age, and some of you have felt his control, some of you have felt his oppression, some of your children have experienced things that are very dark, and all of that is a reminder that there is a force of evil, and he is personal. It's not just a concept of evil in the world. And what Paul is making reference to here is a life that is lived not only in solidarity with a world system that is hostile to God, but actually under the influence of a spiritual being called Satan. And this ruling power has influence and authority. And when Paul says, you were walking or following the prince of the power of the air, he writes it in terms as if that influence was irresistible at moments. But there's a third influence or power that he refers to in this particular text, and he says, you were living in the passions of your flesh, and then he also says, carrying out the desires of the body uh, and the mind. Now, when Paul uses that word flesh, he doesn't actually mean the, the body that you, that you walked into this room with. Occasionally, the Bible uses the term flesh for what, what keeps your bones and muscles and, and your insides where they belong. But he's actually describing the life of a person who is in rebellion and hostility toward God. And then look at these couple of terms, passions. Those are strong desires, lusts, if you will. Desires that sometimes seem so far beyond your control, your ability to restrain, that you you find yourself desperate. Paul writes, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's as if you have become your own enemy. And this is the comprehensive picture of what it means to be enslaved to sin. And then Paul goes on to write, like the rest of mankind, there are no exceptions to this. It's not like some were born into this struggle and other people got a pass. No, this is characteristic of every human being who has ever been born. I love the words of one author from a very helpful book concerning some of this great struggle with our own nature. And he writes, "...we are victims swept along by abductors, marketers, and demonic forces. This is why all the distortions of our sexuality or bitterness or anxiety do not feel like a choice." You ever feel like that? Sometimes like just these things, these desires or, or motives even rise from within you and you think, where is that coming from and why do I have no power to restrain it? That's exactly what this author is pointing to. It doesn't feel like a choice. We have been drafted by strong forces and engulfed by painful experiences. We suffer, but we are also villains. We are carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we are doing what we want to do. We may seek to mitigate our suffering, but we end up exacerbating it. My sin always seems reasonable to me, while your sin seems inexcusable. And left to myself, I can find a way to justify anything I really want. And the choices I make can hurt the people I most love. I sin. And that's what Paul is getting at. We all do it. Like the rest of mankind. So we're not only dead in sin and enslaved to sin and sharing in sin, but here, most horrifically, We are condemned for our sin. Look again at the text with me. When Paul now writes in verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He is speaking of a condition that's actually native to every one of us. You didn't have to go out and apply for an application or or immigration status to be brought into this group, the children of wrath. When you were born, you carried a sin nature into the world. That's what the psalmist wrote. King David, in Psalm 51, verse 5, says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he's not saying that his mother had an immoral relationship that produced him as a child. No, rather, he is saying that from the moment of conception, a sin nature was resident in me. That's scary. I know we look at our little ones sometimes and say, oh, sweet. And then other moments you think, oh, I'm absolutely persuaded there's a sin nature in this little one. (laughs) Grandparents seem to forget some of that. Some of you have taken your children to see grandpa and grandma, and, and you're like, who, who are you? You never treated me like this when I acted up. Well, they had a different mission from God. Now it's in us. By nature, children of wrath. Wrath is the effect of God's righteous anger against all sin. The effect of God's righteous anger against all sin. And it refers to His divine judgment that is being brought against all those who are disobedient to His law. You know that feeling you have inside when you see some kind of injustice done? Any of you experience that? Any of you say, that's not right and somebody needs to make that right. How does that guy get away with that? That's cheating, that's against the rules. Somebody needs to do something. (laughs) Any of you jazz fans? Is that not wrong? (laughs) It's not how you play the game. Now some of you are like, I am clueless. That looks like a basketball game, and the guy in the red jersey looks vaguely familiar. Yeah, he's the enemy. <laughs> James Harden, one of the greatest players playing the game of basketball right now, right? But how do we also know him? And I know at least one of you was in the big arena last night, and, and part of the big crowd trying to help identify him as the flopper. Yeah? Were you there too? Flopping is when you act like the other guy who you're playing against fouled you, knocked you to the ground. Now, a foul is illegal in the game of basketball. We all recognize that. And when you are fouled, there's an appropriate penalty that's assessed in that moment. If you're in the act of shooting, you get to shoot free throws. If it's... If it's not during the act of shooting, then your team gets the ball out on the side and the other player gets assessed a foul and if he gets so many fouls, he actually is done playing for the night. Well, this guy has perfected the art of flopping. And guess what? He gets more free throws per game than any other player. And even last night, oh, he did it, didn't he? <laughs> My daughter had the game on for a few minutes and I sat down to watch and I was getting so exercised. I'm like, I got to preach tomorrow. I cannot watch this. <laughs> You know, that, that sense of anger that rises within you is actually an imperfect reflection of God's anger when he watches and hears and observes our law-breaking. Only it's far more serious than having a foul assessed and maybe being sent to the sideline for the rest of the game you're in on a particular day. No, God's holiness and righteousness is of such a pure nature that He is actually angry every day because of our sin. And to be a child of wrath means that you are actually living in a condition as if you are part of a family of individuals that are in complete rebellion toward God and when God sees and observes when he hears and assesses your every thought, your every word, your every deed, his perfect holy righteous nature begins to respond not with a not with a tantrum. God's never angry in the way that parents are sometimes when, you know, you reach those points where you're just like, I've had it. I have had it with you kids. And that's when kids know they're in trouble and they go scurrying like cockroaches to the dark corners of the house. No, God doesn't throw temper tantrums where he explodes because he's just had it. Rather, his perfect and holy character is stirred every day by our many and actual violations of his holy law and the personal visible expression of that stirring, that personal visible expression of that holy anger is what we call wrath. And wrath is the effect of God's righteous anger against all sin. And it refers to his divine judgment brought upon all those who are disobedient to his law. Have you ever thought about the fact that the cross... And God's violence against his son, wrath being poured out, is actually a visible display of God's anger over your sin and mine. We all cleaned up pretty nicely today, didn't we? See a lot of ties and dresses and a little extra something special today, and that's good and right. But, you know, if we were really exposed at this moment as we are, it would be heinous and ugly. You want to know what kind of sinner Danny Brooks is? Look at the bruised and broken body of Jesus on the cross. Some of you work so hard to hide your sin. You put on a good show, you say words that seem spiritual or honorable, and, and you try to do things that that establish a kind of personality and reputation. And the reality is you know, you know what you're really like, and it terrifies you that it would be exposed. The children of wrath are those who are doomed to experience God's holy judgment because of their sin. And Jesus said in John 3 36 whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son, not just believe. That there is a son of God named Jesus, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 1, verse 18, Paul writes, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 5 to write, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What a horrifying reality this is that we could be among those who are doomed to experience the holy wrath of God against our sin, who because of our hardness of heart and unwillingness to repent are actually storing up more wrath for ourselves in that great day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I pause here and I say, oh, does this describe you? Now, every one of us have at least been in this condition at one time, but you know, some of you are there right now. And that may not seem like a polite thing to say, but it is the truth and it is is bad news up until this point. And so I wonder if we think back through these four particular categories that Paul has just put out, if, if you would say, that does describe me, I am dead in sin and trespasses, and I really am enslaved to sin. I've tried to break some habits that I know, they're, they're not just bad habits, they're, they're evil habits, sinful as, as was described here in the text. I recognize that I'm part of a larger group of people, and I have a share in sin, And I, at this moment, recognize I am one of those who is condemned. A child of wrath. I'm glad that Paul did not end right there. Look at the next words in the text. It's there on the screen. In Ephesians 2, verse 4. After describing this condition of being dead to Christ and dead in sin and trespasses, Paul now writes, but God... But God, I'm so glad that this first subject we encounter is not but you, because to reverse that condition, to undo the kind of thing we were just talking about, would take the work of God. And what does Paul write? Well, let's read it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is a totally different condition, and in one sense a totally different realm, isn't it? But God, what did God do? Well, the big picture is he's made saints like those at Ephesus alive in Christ. So let's, let's walk through this particular portion of, of Scripture and look, first of all, at his motivation for doing this. Did you catch this? Look again at verse 4. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's God's motivation for making you alive. God's mercy, as it has been written, is His overflowing, overflowing, active compassion and is freely exercised, excluding all ideas of merit on the part of its object. And in this case, we're its object. Because God, who's also holy and righteous, we just talked about those things, who cannot even look upon sin without being stirred to a righteous response again, He's also perfect in mercy and compassion. That means when he looks upon the misery of individuals like you and me, misery both of a physical nature and spiritual nature, he is genuinely and perfectly moved. And because of this perfect mercy and because he is moved from his heart, there must be this overflow. There must be this act, this action that he takes. And in this case, God is seeing the misery of our sin. He's seeing the deadness that our trespasses has brought and his heart is overflowing with mercy that moves him to do something. The second second motivator right here for us in this passage is because of the great love with which he loved us. And And then Paul adds this, so there's no mistake, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. God wasn't waiting for you to just kind of turn and start heading toward him and goes, oh, okay, now you get it. Now you see how you need to come back to me, so now I'm going to move towards you with great love. God didn't say, meet me halfway. You do your best, and then I'll meet you halfway there. He didn't say, come 90% of the way toward me and I'll fill in the last 10% with my great love. No, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, this great love began to move him and he acted in particular way and that moves us to this next portion. What did he do? And three really powerful phrases here that really are describing the same thing. He made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us. And that's all tied to this work. And it was God's. Now look again at the text with me. The key phrase all through the book of Ephesians, but particularly here in this little portion, would be anytime you see a prepositional phrase that says with Christ or in him or with him, and the reference is to Christ. All of this is true because one of the, one of the awesome things, and I use that word intentionally even though it's overused today, One of the awesome things that God does is actually to create a real spiritual union with Jesus. And all these little prepositional phrases are reflections of that. And so these these phrases tell us some really important things. And Paul's point, as one commentator writes, is that believers have come to life with Christ. Our new life, then, is a sharing in the new life which he received when he rose from the dead. Oh, this is such good news, because as I consider my own condition of where sin had me, the enslavement, walking according to the the prince of the power of the air, just being under his thumb, as it were, feeling the weight of God's wrath and condemnation, feeling my own guilt over my sins, and sometimes even feeling paralyzed spiritually to do anything. It's such good news that God intervenes and says, I'm going to unite you to my son, and when I bring him out of the dead, Danny, it's a sign that you are a new person. The old you died with Jesus, went into the grave on Friday, a new you has come out, made us alive together with Christ. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was signaling clearly that everything necessary for our salvation had been accomplished. The sacrifice of Christ's life for our sins was perfect and complete. The wrath of God fully absorbed and emptied on Jesus. The debt of sin paid in full. The guilt of sin forever removed. There's nothing for you to add to the finished work of Christ. Not even your obedience to God's law makes a difference in your salvation. And then, not only are we raised, look at this, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, where is Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. That's a place of honor. It's a place of authority and power. And we're not there yet. I mean, you're you're seated in these chairs at this particular moment. You're seated next to friends or family members or maybe even a perfect stranger today. You're not actively thinking of the blessing that it would be to be seated with Christ at the Father's right hand. But do you know something? If you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's exactly where you are at the moment. And from God's perspective, it's as if you're already there. And you're just kind of passing the time on planet Earth until he calls you home, whether by death or by the return of Jesus Christ. But, you know, for some of you, you're not seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms at this moment because there's been no faith. What a position. What a place of security and comfort. So he actually works in a way that moves people from that place of condemnation and wrath, and the expectation only of, of judgment, and more slavery, and says, I'm going to rescue you from all of that, and now I'm going to exalt you to a place of blessing. Oh, what a mighty liberation from slavery this is. Now, look at the, the next verse, verse 7, because this unfolds for us the purpose for making us alive. This is astonishing. So that, that is, he raised you up, seated you in heavenly places in Christ, made you alive. So that, verse 7 tells us, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. There's his purpose. The the grand purpose is not actually to make your life better and my life better. It's actually that he would receive the glory. It's actually so that all kinds of beings would look upon this work that he has done and be amazed. Think about this. For the duration of eternity, the universe will gaze upon people like us who once were dead in their sin but now have been made alive in Christ and they will say, you know, their sin was greater than anyone could possibly imagine and their crimes and treason against the most high God, more heinous than history could tell, but God's grace and kindness is greater than all of that. Look at God. Look at how rich in grace he is. Look at how generous in mercy he is. Look at the fabulous wealth of his love. This is what it has accomplished. What rescue. What blessing. Now, God has a means for making us alive, and that's what verse 8 speaks of. By grace through faith. By grace through faith. What is grace? Because here Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Well, if you examine both the Old and the New Testament, you will see that as God unfolds this concept of grace, it is always referring to the undeserved kindness of God to those who positively deserve wrath, judgment, punishment, discipline, correction, something bad. And in this case, as Paul has been laying it out for us, we don't deserve to be forgiven for our sins, but when God acts in grace, we are. We don't deserve to be united with Jesus eternally, but we are. We don't deserve to be adopted into God's family, but we are. We don't deserve to receive an eternal inheritance, but we do. We don't deserve to be seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms, but He has seated us there in that very place. And so he says, by grace, you have been saved. And again, let's make sure we're not missing the safe from what? Safe from sin, safe from slavery to the prince of the power of the air, safe from the passions of the flesh that forced us to carry out the desires of our body and mind, safe from God's wrath. But look again at verse eight, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. That is, you and I could never be considered the source of our own salvation, so, if you've been thinking that, you, you need to correct that thinking. If, if you want to take some kind of credit for it and say, well, you know, I'm not as bad as I used to be, but I'm a lot better, and, you know, I've done a lot to improve myself. Ooh, sorry, God's not giving you credit for that. I say, what do you mean? Well, look again at the words of Paul It is the gift of God. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can you see that well enough? What's the difference between these two cards? The one on the left, platinum check card. In case you're wondering, it's not mine. Those aren't real numbers, so stop copying them down. (laughs) The one on the right, clearly, it's a Visa gift card. Some ways, both cards have to be loaded up. There has to be something behind that card for it to be useful, right? Well, how do you load the one on the left? Long hard work, right? Some of you work for minimum wage, some of you have have earned and established a higher earning power, but you're still you're all putting in hours. We're all trying to put in enough hours to make sure there's enough stuff on the left side so that when we swipe it, bad things don't happen. Because we want our food, we need our gas, we want some new clothes from time to time, we want to enjoy some entertainment, you want to go skiing, you want to see a movie, all kinds of things that are on your list. But when you work and then your employer says the deposit is there, whether electronically or if you get an old-fashioned check and you go to the bank, I mean, you expect it to be there. And you don't turn around and thank A whole bunch of people for making this possible, right? Because you feel like, I worked. I'm grateful for my job, but at the end of the day, it's still a good deal for both of us. The one on the right, though, is of a very different nature. You could, I guess, in theory, get yourself a gift card, but that's really weird. (laughs) When you receive one of those, somebody else, though, has put their credits in the account haven't they and they've loaded it up and it's a really great thing and, and when you receive one of those you always open the envelope and you look you, you try not to be too conspicuous but the bottom line is how much is on there <laughs> and if it's 25 bucks you're like oh thanks if it's 100 bucks you're like hey cool a 1000 bucks you're like awesome less than 25 and you're like mm, why'd you bother Not me, right? I would never do that. But somebody else did it. Somebody else placed their credit into that account. You take credit for the one, you express gratitude for the other. You're proud of the one, or even frustrated because of the lack maybe, You're touched and humbled by the other. You know, in this salvation, God is giving you a gift. And he didn't load the gift card with a portion of what you need to be forgiven and enjoy eternal life. He loaded it with everything and more. See, the reality is if you take God's gift, and though you may even debit that card by some of your sin and failure, his grace is greater, and it's continually loading the card. Oh, not, not to make an excuse for you to just keep sinning and act like it's no big deal. Now, we're going to get to a powerful personal motivation for us in a moment, but what he's saying here is you are saved by grace through faith. Now, let's talk about faith for a moment. Let's say that in, in an extraordinary act of generosity, your, your loved one or friend hands you a A $1,000 gift card for your birthday. But you just leave it on the dresser. And two months rolls by and they say, hey, what have you done with the gift card? Like, oh, you know, I'm so grateful for that. I'm a little nervous about taking it out and uh, shopping with it. Like, what? What are you talking about? Well, you know, I'm just not sure it will work. After all, there are a lot of things that, you know, could be faulty in the system. And so I... I'm just going to continue to use my check card because I know on any given week what my paycheck is and what my expenses are. And I'm just a little more comfortable trying to do it my own way. Your friend or family member is is insulted and frustrated at that particular moment. They're saying, I loaded it up with more than you can possibly spend in one day. Go use it. But because you haven't activated it, you actually haven't taken a step of faith. Now, your faith doesn't put more credits on that card. And your lack of faith doesn't actually take credits away from the card. But because you won't go swipe it in faith, you don't receive the actual blessing that was intended for you. And so faith is God's means. Your faith doesn't add to the work of Jesus Christ, and your faith can't take away from the Jesus Christ, can't take away from the work of Jesus Christ. But if you don't activate your faith, then everything we've talked about here is not appropriated to you. It's all of God, all of his grace, but your faith and its activity is important. You know, this concept of grace is so marvelous, so life-altering, that it really is difficult for us to understand it. One author wisely wrote, Grace ceases to be grace. If God is compelled to bestow it in the presence of human merit. And grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human demerit. It's a gift. So receive it. Take it. Use it. Last thought, look at verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that's God's design. He didn't save you from sin to turn you loose into it again. He didn't raise you with Jesus so that you could go on and act as if it's no big deal that Jesus came out of the grave. No big deal that Jesus died on the cross. No, he wants your entire life to be transformed. And one of the evidences of a changed life is that you actually begin to devote yourself to good works. Now tie this to those first three verses and remember, could you really be devoted to good works beforehand? No. Because you're dead in sin. You're enslaved to it. Remember walking according to the course of this world? And That doesn't mean that... That no spiritually dead person can ever do any good thing. Because you, you can't, but nothing of this significance or value. Furthermore, you are following the, the prince of the power of the air under his control, but now you're in union with Jesus under the control of God. You've received this gift of grace. You know that the debit card, that no matter what you go out to do in service of of him, sacrifice for others, I mean, you're never gonna swipe that debit card of grace, so to speak, and find out that God forgot to put more in. He's provided everything that you need, and so now he calls you to good works. But look at verse 10 again. We are his workmanship. That is, he's doing something in you so while God didn't save you because of your good works, He has saved you and raised you with Christ and created a new you for the purpose of good works. And He brings you into a new life that really does have a divine mission. You know, one of the tragedies that we're all witnessing in our community right now is that many people, and a number of them young people, high schoolers, Even some who are younger have so despaired of life that for them the only way out of this this pressure cooker that they're living through is suicide. And I say, what? What have we come to as a community that our young people aren't finding a real and lasting hope, something of an eternal proportion, something that is created by God for their good, for His glory, some mission that they could could cast themselves into, receiving all of this forgiveness and, and union with Christ and blessing by faith and press on and live. And, and many of you, as I, have read some of these articles and, and you just think to yourself, oh, oh if, if I could have spoken to that child, if I could speak to those parents. And there's something within us that wants to offer hope and that in itself is a reflection of God Almighty who's rich in mercy and great in his love. But God doesn't just come and give us pats on the back and say, oh, hang in there, it'll be better. No, he comes in and says, oh, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but if you will exercise faith in me, I'll make you alive, and you'll live in a way you've never lived before. Here's a whole new life. There was a time when we walked in disobedience and sin, Follow the ways of this world, We're in terrible bondage to the devil and we're destined for wrath. What Paul is writing here and what one Bible scholar encapsulates in this statement is that now because of God's mighty salvation in which a glorious change has been effected, we are expected through the agency of His Holy Spirit to demonstrate a changed lifestyle. Our attitudes and behavior are to show all the hallmarks of the new creation, And that's what God does. Where are you this morning? Where are you? The resurrection marks a significant divide. And when Jesus was raised, those who are united to him by faith were also raised to a new life as new people. But those who have not exercised their faith remain dead in their trespasses and sins walking according to the course of this world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience and are by nature children of wrath. But you do not have to stay there, my friend. You do not have to remain in that dark and deadly condition if you would receive the gift of God's grace, His saving grace, His forgiving grace, His reconciling grace, His adopting grace, His empowering grace, you could experience this risen life with Jesus. Would you bow your heads, please, with me for just a moment? You want to pray together? And actually, I want you to pray too. God most high, the one who's given us this word, given it for our good, given it for our salvation and rescue. For those of you who say, if I'm honest, I think I'm dead. Oh, then call out to him and just tell him, God almighty, I recognize I'm dead in my sin. Would you forgive me for my sin and Rescue me in your grace. I receive the gift of this grace and ask that you would make a new person out of me. Something like that. Just call from your heart right now. You don't even have to use audible words, but from your soul to God, pray. You know, some of you have put your faith in Jesus, but you've, you've kind of forgotten who you really are. And you've let your recent failures, your sins, both against God and other people, start creating that old identity. And you just need to pause this morning and say, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me for those sins, but remind me again, I've been raised together with Christ, made alive together with Christ. And then you need to consecrate yourself anew, afresh, to go live like it. He created you for good works. So stop messing around with your sin, stop acting as if the cross and empty tomb aren't that big of a deal. But just let the Lord bring you back to that sweet place where you you know you're in right relationship with Him, you're submitted to Him, you're serving Him. Father, would you take your word, not any opinion that I may have spoken or any opinion that we may have formed in our hearts, but would you take your word and your truth and seal it to our souls And continue that work today and bring dead people to life as they experience this grace gift. And would you renew those believers who are weary and worn and struggling to press on in faith. Oh great God. Do your resurrection work in us today. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.